0: There was yet a visit to the doctor. A simple formality, assured me the secretary, with an air of taking an immense part in all my sorrows. Accordingly, a young chap, wearing his hat over the left eyebrow—some clerk, I suppose —there must have been clerks in the business, though the house was as still as a house in the City of the Dead—came from somewhere upstairs and led me forth. He was shabby and careless, with ink stains on the sleeves of his jacket, and his cravat was large and billowy, under a chin shaped like the toe of an old boot. It was a little too early for the doctor, so I proposed a drink, and thereupon he developed a vein of joviality. As we sat over our vermouths, he glorified the company's business, and by and by I expressed casually my surprise at him not going out there. He became very cool and collected all at once. "'I am not such a fool as I look,' quoth Plato to his disciples. He said sententiously, emptied his glass with great resolution, and we rose. The old doctor felt my pulse, evidently thinking of something else the while. "'Good, good,' for there,' he mumbled. "'And then, with a certain eagerness, asked me whether I would let him measure my head. Rather surprised, I said, "'Yes,' when he produced a thing like calipers and got the dimensions back and front and every way, taking notes carefully. He was an unshaven little man in a threadbare coat like a gabardine, with his feet in slippers, and I thought him a harmless fool. I always ask leave in the interests of science to measure the crania of those going out there, he said. And when they come back, too, I asked. Oh, I never see them, he remarked. And moreover, the changes take place inside, you know. He smiled as if at some quiet joke. "'So you are going out there. Famous. Interesting, too.' He gave me a searching glance and made another note. "'Ever any madness in your family?' he asked in a matter-of-fact tone. I felt very annoyed. "'Is that question in the interest of science, too?' "'It would be,' he said, without taking notice of my irritation, "'interesting for science to watch the mental changes of individuals on the spot. "'But are you an alienist?' I interrupted. "'Every doctor should be, a little,' answered that original imperturbably. "'I have a little theory which you messieurs who go out there must help me to prove. "'This is my share in the advantages my country shall reap "'from the possession of such a magnificent dependency.' The mere wealth I leave to others. Pardon my questions, but you are the first Englishman coming under my observation. I hastened to assure him I was not in the least typical. If I were, said I, I wouldn't be talking like this with you. What you say is rather profound, and probably erroneous, he said with a laugh. Avoid irritation more than exposure to the sun. Adieu. Uh, how do you English say, good huh? uh, Goodbye, Ah. Goodbye. Adieu. In the tropics, one must, before everything, keep calm. He lifted a warning finger. Do calm. Do calm. Adieu. One thing more remained to do. Say goodbye to my excellent aunt. I found her triumphant. I had a cup of tea, the last decent cup for many days, and in a room that most soothingly looked just as you would expect a lady's drawing-room to look. We had a long, quiet chat by the fireside. In the course of these confidences, it became quite plain to me I had been represented to the wife of the high dignitary, and goodness knows to how many more people besides, as an exceptional and gifted creature, a piece of good fortune for the company, a man you don't get hold of every day. Good heavens! "'and I was going to take charge of a two-penny, half-penny river steamboat "'with a penny whistle attached. "'It appeared, however, I was also one of the workers with a capital, you know, "'something like an emissary of light, something like a lower sort of apostle. "'There had been a lot of such rot, let loose in print and talk just about that time, "'and the excellent woman, living right in the rush of all that humbug, "'got carried off her feet.' She talked about weaning those ignorant millions from their horrid ways, till upon my word she made me quite uncomfortable. I ventured to hint that the company was run for profit. You forget, dear Charlie, that the laborer is worthy of his hire, she said brightly. It's queer how out of touch with truth women are. They live in a world of their own, and there has never been anything like it, and never can be. It is too beautiful altogether, and if they were to set it up, it would go to pieces before the first sunset. Some confounded fact we men have been living contentedly with ever since the day of creation would start up and knock the whole thing over. After this I got embraced, told to wear flannel, be sure to write often, and so on, and I left. In the street, I don't know why, a queer feeling came to me that I was an imposter. Odd thing that I, who used to clear out for any part of the world at twenty four hours notice with less thought than most men give to the crossing of a street, had a moment, I won't say of hesitation, but of startled pause before this commonplace affair. The best way I can explain it to you is by saying that for a second or two I felt as though, instead of going to the center of a continent, I were about to set off for the center of the earth. I left in a French steamer and she called it every blamed port they have out there, for as far as I could see, the sole purpose of landing soldiers and custom house officers. I watched the coast. Watching a coast as it slips by the ship is like thinking about an enigma. There it is before you, smiling, frowning, inviting, grand, mean, insipid or savage, and always mute with an air of whispering, come and find out. This one was almost featureless, as if still in the making, with an aspect of monotonous grimness. The edge of a colossal jungle, so dark green as to be almost black, fringed with white surf, ran straight like a ruled line far, far away along a blue sea whose glitter was blurred by a creeping mist. The sun was fierce. The land seemed to glisten and drip with steam. Here and there, Grayish-whitish specks showed up clustered inside the white surf, with a flag flying above them, perhaps. Settlements, some centuries old, and still no bigger than pinheads on the untouched expanse of their background. We pounded along, stopped, landed soldiers, went on, landed custom-house clerks to levy toll on what looked like a godforsaken wilderness, with a tin shed and a flagpole lost in it, "'landed more soldiers to take care of the custom-house clerks, presumably. "'Some, I heard, got drowned in the surf. "'But whether they did or not, nobody seemed particularly to care. "'They were just flung out there, and on we went. "'Every day the coast looked the same, as though we had not moved. "'But we passed various places, trading places, "'with names like Grand Bassam, Little Popo, Names that seemed to belong to some sordid farce acted in front of a sinister backcloth. The idleness of a passenger, my isolation amongst all these men with whom I had no point of contact, the oily and languid sea, the uniform sombreness of the coast, seemed to keep me away from the truth of things, within the toil of a mournful and senseless delusion. The voice of the surf heard now and then was a positive pleasure, like the speech of a brother, it was something natural that had its reason, that had a meaning. Now and then a boat from the shore gave one a momentary contact with reality. It was paddled by black fellows. You could see from afar the white of their eyeballs glistening. They shouted, sang, their bodies streamed with perspiration. They had faces like grotesque masks, these chaps. But they had bone, muscle, a wild vitality, an intense energy of movement. "'that was as natural and true as the surf along their coast. "'They wanted no excuse for being there. "'They were a great comfort to look at. "'For a time, I would feel I belonged still "'to a world of straightforward facts. "'But the feeling would not last long. "'Something would turn up to scare it away. "'Once, I remember we came upon a man-of-war "'anchored off the coast. "'There wasn't even a shed there, "'and she was shelling the bush.' It appears the French had one of their wars going on thereabouts. Her ensign dropped limp like a rag. The muzzles of the long six-inch guns stuck out all over the low hull. The greasy, slimy swell swung her up lazily and let her down, swaying her thin masts. In the empty immensity of earth, sky, and water, there she was, incomprehensible, firing into a continent. Pop would go one of the six-inch guns. A small flame would dart and vanish. A little white smoke would disappear. A tiny projectile would give a feeble screech. And nothing happened. Nothing could happen. There was a touch of insanity in the proceeding, a sense of lugubrious drollery in the sight, and it was not dissipated by somebody on board assuring me earnestly there was a camp of natives, he called them enemies, hidden out of sight somewhere. We gave her her letters. I heard the men on that lonely ship were dying of fever at the rate of three a day, and went on. We called it some more places with farcical names, where the merry dance of death and trade goes on in a still and earthy atmosphere as of an overheated catacomb, all along the formless coast bordered by dangerous surf as if nature herself had tried to ward off intruders, in and out of rivers, Streams of death in life, whose banks were rotting into mud, whose waters thickened into slime, invaded the contorted mangroves that seemed to writhe at us in the extremity of an impotent despair. Nowhere did we stop long enough to get a particularized impression, but the general sense of vague and oppressive wonder grew upon me. It was like a weary pilgrimage amongst hints for nightmares. It was upward of thirty days before I saw the mouth of the big river. We anchored off the seat of the government, but my work would not begin till some two hundred miles farther on, so as soon as I could I made a start for a place thirty miles higher up. I had my passage on a little seagoing steamer. Her captain was a Swede, and knowing me for a seaman, invited me on the bridge. He was a young man. "'lean, fair, and morose, with lanky hair and a shuffling gait. "'As we left the miserable little wharf, "'he tossed his head contemptuously at the shore. "'Been living there?' he asked. "'I said, yes. "'Fine lot, these government chaps, are they not?' "'He went on, speaking English with great precision and considerable bitterness. "'It is funny what some people will do for a few francs a month. "'I wonder what becomes of that kind when it goes up country.' I said to him, I expected to see that soon. So, he exclaimed. He shuffled athwart, keeping one eye ahead vigilantly. Don't be too sure, he continued. The other day I took up a man who hanged himself on the road. He was a Swede, too. Hanged himself? Why, in God's name, I cried. He kept on looking out watchfully. Who knows? The sun too much for him, or the country, perhaps. At last we opened a reach. A rocky cliff appeared, mounds of turned-up earth by the shore, houses on a hill, others with iron roofs amongst a waste of excavations, or hanging to the declivity. A continuous noise of the rapids above hovered over this scene of inhabited devastation. A lot of people, mostly black and naked, moved about like ants. A jetty projected into the river. "'A blinding sunlight drowned all this at times in a sudden recrudescence of glare. "'There's your company's station,' said the Swede, "'pointing to three wooden barrack-like structures on the rocky slope. "'I will send you things up. Four boxes, did you say? So. Farewell.' "'I came upon a boiler wallowing in the grass, "'then found a path leading up the hill. It turned aside for the boulders.' "'and also for an undersized railway truck lying there on its back "'with its wheels in the air. "'One was off. "'The thing looked as dead as the carcass of some animal. "'I came upon more pieces of decaying machinery, "'a stack of rusty rails. "'To the left, a clump of trees made a shady spot "'where dark things seemed to stir feebly. "'I blinked. "'The path was steep. "'A horn tooted to the right, "'and I saw the black people run. A heavy and dull detonation shook the ground. A puff of smoke came out of the cliff, and that was all. No change appeared on the face of the rock. They were building a railway. The cliff was not in the way or anything, but this objectless blasting was all the work going on. A slight clinking behind me made me turn my head. Six black men advanced in a file, toiling up the path. They walked erect and slow, "'balancing small baskets full of earth on their heads, "'and the clink kept time with their footsteps. "'Black rags were wound round their low ends, "'and the short ends behind waggled to and fro like tails. "'I could see every rib. "'The joints of their limbs were like knots in a rope. "'Each had an iron collar on his neck, "'and all were connected together with a chain "'whose bites swung between them rhythmically, clinking.' Another report from the cliff made me think suddenly of that ship of war I had seen firing into a continent. It was the same kind of ominous voice, but these men could by no stretch of the imagination be called enemies. They were called criminals, and the outraged law, like the bursting shells, had come to them an insoluble mystery from the sea. All their meager breasts panted together. The violently dilated nostrils quivered. The eyes stared stonily uphill. They passed me within six inches without a glance, with that complete death-like indifference of unhappy savages. Behind this raw matter, one of the reclaimed, the product of the new forces at work, strolled despondently, carrying a rifle by its middle. He had a uniform jacket with one button off, and seeing a white man on the path, hoisted his weapon to his shoulder with alacrity. This was simple prudence. "'white men being so much alike at a distance "'that he could not tell who I might be. "'He was speedily reassured, "'and with a large, white, rascally grin "'and a glance at his charge, "'seemed to take me into partnership in his exalted trust. "'After all, I was also a part of this great cause "'of these high and just proceedings. "'Instead of going up, I turned and descended to the left. "'My idea was to let that chain gang get out of sight "'before I climbed the hill.' You know, I'm not particularly tender. I've had to strike out and fend off. I've had to resist and to attack sometimes. That's only one way of resisting, without counting the exact cost, according to the demands of such sort of life as I had blundered into. I've seen the devil of violence and the devil of greed and the devil of hot desire. But by all the stars, these were strong, lusty, red-eyed devils that swayed and drove men. Men, I tell you. But as I stood on this hillside, I foresaw in the blinding sunshine of that land I would become acquainted with a flabby, pretending, weak-eyed devil of a rapacious and pitiless folly. How insidious he could be, too, I was only to find out several months later and a thousand miles farther. For a moment I stood appalled, as though by a warning. Finally... I descended the hill, obliquely, toward the trees I had seen. I avoided a vast artificial hole somebody had been digging on the slope, the purpose of which I found it impossible to divine. It wasn't a quarry or a sand pit, anyhow. It was just a hole. It might have been connected with the philanthropic desire of giving the criminals something to do, I don't know. Then I nearly fell into a narrow ravine, almost no more than a scar in the hillside. I discovered that a lot of imported drainage pipes for the settlement had been tumbled in there. There wasn't one that was not broken. It was a wanton smash-up. At last I got under the trees. My purpose was to stroll into the shade for a moment, but no sooner within than it seemed to me I had stepped into the gloomy circle of some inferno. The rapids were near, and an uninterrupted, uniform headlong rushing noise filled the mournful stillness of the grove, where not a breath stirred, not a leaf moved, with a mysterious sound, as though the tearing pace of the launched earth had suddenly become audible. Black shapes crouched, lay, sat between the trees leaning against the trunks, clinging to the earth, half coming out, half effaced within the dim light, in all the attitudes of pain, abandonment, and despair. Another mine on the cliff went off, followed by a slight shudder of the soil under my feet. The work was going on. The work. And this was the place where some of the helpers had withdrawn to die. They were dying slowly. It was very clear. They were not enemies. They were not criminals. They were nothing earthly now. Nothing but black shadows of disease and starvation, lying confusedly in the greenish gloom, brought from all the recesses of the coast, in all the legality of time contracts, lost in uncongenial surroundings, fed on unfamiliar food, they sickened, became inefficient, and were then allowed to crawl away and rest. These moribund shapes were free as air, and nearly as thin. I began to distinguish the gleam of the eyes under the trees. Then, glancing down, I saw a face near my hand. The black bones reclined at full length with one shoulder against the tree, and slowly the eyelids rose, and the sunken eyes looked up at me, enormous and vacant, a kind of blind white flicker in the depths of the orbs, which died out slowly. The man seemed young, almost a boy, But you know, with them it's hard to tell. I found nothing else to do but to offer him one of my good Swede's ship's biscuits I had in my pocket. The fingers closed slowly on it and held. There was no other movement and no other glance. He had tied a bit of white worsted round his neck. Why? Where did he get it? Was it a badge? An ornament? A charm? A propitiatory act? Was there any idea at all connected with it? It looked startling around his black neck, this bit of white thread from beyond the seas. Near the same tree, two more bundles of acute angles sat with their legs drawn up, one with his chin propped on his knees, staring at nothing in an intolerable and appalling manner. His brother phantom rested its forehead, as if overcome with a great weariness, and all about— Others were scattered in every pose of contorted collapse, as in some picture of a massacre or a pestilence. While I stood horror-struck, one of these creatures rose to his hands and knees and went off on all fours toward the river to drink. He lapped out of his hand, then sat up in the sunlight, crossing his shins in front of him, and after a time let his woolly head fall on his breastbone. I didn't want any more loitering in the shade, and I made haste toward the station. When near the buildings I met a white man in such an unexpected elegance of get-up that at first moment I took him for a sort of vision. I saw a high starched collar, white cuffs, a light alpaca jacket, snowy trousers, a clean necktie and varnished boots, no hat, hair parted, brushed, oiled, "'under a green-lined parasol, held in a big white hand. "'He was amazing, and had a pin holder behind his ear. "'I shook hands with this miracle, "'and I learned he was the company's chief accountant, "'and that all the bookkeeping was done at this station. "'He had come out for a moment,' he said, "'to get a breath of fresh air. "'The expression sounded wonderfully odd "'with its suggestion of sedentary desk life.' I wouldn't have mentioned the fellow to you at all, only it was from his lips that I first heard the name of the man who is so indissolubly connected with the memories of that time. Moreover, I respected the fellow. Yes, I respected his collars, his vast cuffs, his brushed hair. His appearance was certainly that of a hairdresser's dummy. But in the great demoralization of the land, he kept up his appearance. That's backbone. His starched collars and got-up shirt-fronts were achievements of character. He had been out nearly three years, and later I could not help asking him how he managed to sport such linen. He had just the faintest blush, and said modestly, I have been teaching one of the native women about the station. It was difficult. She had a distaste for the work. Thus this man had verily accomplished something and he was devoted to his books, which were in apple-pie order. Everything else in the station was in a muddle. Heads, things, buildings, strings of dusty niggers with splayed feet arrived and departed, a stream of manufactured goods, rubbishy cottons, beads, and brass wire set into the depths of darkness, and in return came a precious trickle of ivory. I had to wait in the station for ten days, an eternity. I lived in a hut in the yard, but to be out of the chaos, I would sometimes get into the accountant's office. It was built of horizontal planks and so badly put together that as he bent over his high desk, he was barred from neck to heels with narrow strips of sunlight. There was no need to open the big shutter to see. It was hot in there, too. Big flies buzzed fiendishly and did not sting, but stabbed. I sat generally on the floor. While of faultless appearance, and even slightly scented, perching on a high stool, he wrote. He wrote. Sometimes he stood up for exercise. When a truckle bed with a sick man, some invalid agent from up country, was put in there, he exhibited a gentle annoyance. The groans of this sick person, he said, distract my attention. And without that... It is extremely difficult to guard against clerical errors in this climate.